Hi, I'm Lavinia. And I'm Kelly. Welcome to season two of There She Goes, where women writers share true stories of travel, their stories, their experiences told in their own voices. There's a specific kind of magic that happens when women go traveling, and the stories that spring from those experiences are diverse and limitless. Stories of harrowing escapades, quiet epiphanies, powerful connections, transformative moments, and wild possibilities. There She Goes is a storytelling podcast. It's also an invitation to escape, briefly, to some distant elsewhere with a kindred companion. We hope it offers the exact travel infusion you need right now, whatever that looks like. Maybe it's a vicarious journey to hold you over till you're ready to go exploring again, or inspiration for your next adventure. We love sharing these stories and storytellers with you. So pack your bags and settle in, because here we go. Today we travel with Angela Long to India, where she seeks solace in the Ganges and meets a holy man who, despite his vow of silence, shares an important message with her. Angela is a freelance journalist and multi-genre writer. Her work has appeared in numerous publications, including The Globe and Mail, Utney Reader, The Sun, and Poetry Ireland Review. She's the author of two books, Observations from Off the Grid and Every Day We Disappear. While she calls Canada home, she lives part-time in Galicia, Spain, where she cares for a growing number of abandoned cats. I'm Angela Long, reading Good is Coming. Every day, I walk down to the Ganges River for a swim. Along the way, I pass a cave chiseled out of the rock. There's an old man there, a holy man. He's usually crouched low over a fire, snapping twigs. I try my best not to let him see me looking inside his home. I don't want to be disrespectful, but I'm curious. I've never seen a holy man's living quarters before. Sometimes, when I think he's bent low enough, I walk slowly to catch a better glimpse of life inside the cave. I've seen a battered pot, a wool blanket, I've spied an altar at the back, candles burning, pictures of Hindi gods and goddesses. Today, the holy man is sitting very still at the mouth of his cave, gazing at the lemon trees. It's difficult not to stare at his long, neatly combed white hair and intense brown eyes. Every day, When I get to the river, I wait behind the rocks until the groups of white water rafters have bobbed past, and then I come out and dive straight into water fresh from the Himalayas. The cold is shocking. At the ashram where I'm staying, they joke I must have Canadian blood to be so foolish as to swim up here in November. I humor them saying I come from a people who run naked into oceans in sub-zero temperatures on New Year's Day. To be honest, my blood rebels against the water temperature. 
It numbs my every cell. But I have no choice except to swim in it. The river cures everything, eventually, I've been told. Rheumatism, cancer, snake bites, broken hearts, bad karma. For thousands of years, people have found their way to its banks and prayed to it, adorned it with flowers, burned their dead beside it, swum in it, millions and millions of people. I like to float along in its current, thinking of this. I like to imagine my body as a sieve and the river straining through me, the rapids crushing any molecules of disease. I like to imagine my broken heart coming dislodged and floating downstream like a dead branch, my bad karma sinking to the bottom with the silt. Like the silt, every day it seems to pile higher. Every day I remember some new misdemeanor. Lies, jealousy, unkindness, it's all there. Cringing in the cold water, I think back on turning 30 and on my 20s and all the way back to my teens to the worst thing I've ever done. Something I've never spoken of and probably never will. Do we all hold one such secret? I float there, thinking about that night I'd rather forget and wait for the river to swallow me whole, but it doesn't. After my swim, I walk along the beach and shiver. Sometimes I see the holy man farther downstream making elaborate gestures with a stick of incense. Other times he's just sitting and looking at the rapids. If it's a sunny day, the flattest rocks will be covered with his laundry cantaloupe-colored sarongs, matching handkerchiefs, and towels. If he's close enough, I smile broadly, place my hands in prayer position, bow slightly, and say, Namaste. The holy man always seems amused by this, but he never returns my greeting. I've been told by the ashram's meditation leader, Lalita, that he's taken a 12-year vow of silence. I've also been told to avoid contact with him at all costs. But I figure even holy men like to be smiled at now and again. I confess that while he's busy with his incense stick at the river, I take advantage of his absence from the cave and linger for a few moments at the threshold looking more closely at the gods and goddesses and his neatly kept fire pit until I start to feel guilty and walk quickly back up the hill to the ashram. I've overstayed my time here. A one-week retreat to learn the basics of Hinduism and yoga has turned into three. I've self-tailored the past two weeks to suit my own spiritual needs which include reading novels, writing poems, and, of course, swimming in the river. Luckily, the ashram is slow this time of year, 
and Lalita is happy as long as I keep quiet. I think she sees me as a bit of a lost soul, too fragile to return to the rigors of traveling alone in India. I think she's right. As the river becomes colder, Lalita begins to talk of closing for the season. Though I worry the Ganges hasn't cured me yet, I decide it's best to leave. I walk five kilometers into the village and buy a bus ticket to the deserts of Rajasthan. On impulse, I buy the holy man a bag of oranges and leave them by the mouth of his cave. On my last day at the ashram, I walk to the Ganges for my final swim. I see the holy man inside his cave, bent over the fire, snapping twigs. The moment my footstep falls by the cave entrance, he turns and gestures for me to enter. I look nervously back toward the ashram. He slaps the ground hard with a twig and fixes me with a scowl. I go inside. He leads me to the altar. There, beneath the portrait of Shiva, balances a pyramid of oranges. He points to me, to the oranges, to Shiva. He places his hands between his chest in prayer position and bows his head. Then he rubs the spine of a cabbage leaf onto the dirt floor and begins to write with its juice in English. Breakfast, tomorrow, 7 a.m. He looks to me for a response. I nod. He claps his hands together twice, smiling so widely I can see that he has only four teeth. Then he turns his back to me, bends over the fire, and snaps twigs. When I arrive the next morning at seven, the holy man is stirring a pot over the fire. I offer him the only item I have left in my chocolate stash, a Kit Kat bar. He claps his hands and smiles, gesturing me towards a cushion atop a bamboo mat. He busies himself with the pot and I fidget on the cushion, growing more and more nervous, but my nervousness is soon overtaken by curiosity. I'm at leisure to examine every detail of the cave. The holy man's bedroll, the symbols written in ash on the wall above it, the package of incense, the books stacked neatly in a recess. He walks to his shelf made of branches lashed together by twine and extracts an assortment of bags from a large box, then returns to the fire. Finally, the holy man presents me with a mysterious concoction in an ornately patterned copper bowl. He sits in front of me and watches as I take my first spoonful. I've prepared myself to love it, no matter how horrible it tastes. But when it reaches my tongue, I raise my eyebrows in surprise, then take another bite 
and another. I can't stop eating. It's as though he's captured every flavor I've ever loved. The sweet, the savory, it's all there in my copper bowl. He laughs and gives me more. He points to Shiva, to the pot on the fire, to me. He goes outside and returns with the spine of a cabbage leaf. Deva, he writes, points to me and then to the center of his forehead. I see you, he writes. I must look confused because he squeezes his eyes shut, opens them, and then writes, Good heart, I see you inside. I panic for a moment. Can he read my mind? I try to think pure thoughts, and he laughs again. Suddenly, his expression changes to one of pain. Suffer, he writes quickly, the cabbage stem beginning to turn to mush. Too much. I've suffered too much, I ask, and he nods his head. Yes, I say. Yes, I know. The holy man claps his hands and smiles. He throws the cabbage stem aside and picks up a twig. Good is coming. He scratches into the dirt. He points to every word. Good is coming, I say. And he claps again. Good is coming, I say liking the feel of the words in my mouth. You've been listening to season two of There She Goes, a storytelling podcast created by two women travelers and recorded from their homes in Alabama and Louisiana. Our theme music is a selection from the song City of Refuge, created and performed by Abigail Washburn. Thanks to Jay Burgess for engineering. Thanks to our amazing writers for proving how essential women's narratives are and for bringing their voices to There She Goes. And thanks to you, our listeners, for coming along. Be sure to tell your friends about There She Goes and follow us on your favorite platforms. And most of all, come back for more illuminating stories from around the world. <laughs>